So if you looked at the model that I use, it starts with the concept of why do we discipline our kids? Well, actually, we discipline our children because we love them. And then the second point is that the first commandment of parenting is consistency. So you can imagine yourself uh, having a toddler. You're exhausted as a mom. And uh, if you have more than one, uh, you know, not double it. Usually, you know, that kind of exponentially goes up with the amount of time, energy and maintenance work of the kid. But if you're wanting to do positive parenting, you really have to have this idea that I have to be very consistent. So what I say and what I do matches. The third concept is that I care about what each individual child thinks and feels and that each child is unique. So there actually might be different interventions I'm going to have for one child versus another. Welcome to Mother Good, where we strongly believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. I'm your host, Emily Carney, and I'm so happy that you are here. Our conversations are positive, practical, authentic, and judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. If you are looking for a meaningful motherhood community and ready to thrive, not just survive, you are in the right place. You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 15. In this episode, I chat with Chris Jablonski, who is a psychotherapist and has a lot of experience counseling parents in positive parenting. I must confess that before this episode, I didn't know exactly what positive parenting was. I had seen some things on social media about it, and I've also talked with other parents about what they've said it is but I didn't know exactly what it was. And so this was a really eye-opening episode and I'm definitely really on board with what positive parenting is. As Chris explains in this episode, it's not permissive parenting, which is allowing your children to basically do whatever they want and walk all over you. But on the flip side, it also isn't authoritarian either. Chris gives so many practical tips and tools in this episode that I'm so excited to implement. So I know you will as well. One of the things that she also shares that I was really shocked to learn that she said that by the time a child is two years old, that they have 50% of their self-esteem developed for better or for worse. So this is a really important topic to make sure that we do parent in the right style and we discipline our children in the right way so that we will be able to cultivate self-esteem in our children, but then at the same time, institute boundaries with our children so that they feel safe and secure. So without further ado, here's our amazing conversation with Chris. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you on the show because we've been having so many of our listeners ask to have specifically an episode on how to parent I would just like to also ask if you would be able to just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your experience, just so people know um, where you're coming from. Absolutely. So I am a psychotherapist in private practice in uh, Placentia, California, and um, I specialize in women's issues and I love new mothers and parenting issues. Uh, I have a background in nursing And I've been doing that for over 34 years in private practice. It wasn't, though, until I actually became a mother myself that I recognized and realized that book learning and, uh, you know, practical experience sometimes are two very different things. 
So it's uh, an area I absolutely love doing, and I've done a lot of uh, parent uh, conferences and uh, spoken at parent groups, including MOPS. Um, and it's just something that I feel a lot of passion for. What's your um, license for therapy? Because I, I must confess, I don't really know all the different licenses. So maybe you can just explain what they are. Yeah, a lot of people don't. So I'm actually practicing as a psychotherapist under my nursing license. And I'm board certified both from my professional association, which is the American Nursing Credentialing um, Association, and also for the state of California. So I'm able to be in private practice as a nurse. Uh, and we just have a different way of looking at things. We kind of look at uh, each individual and family holistically. We look for what's going right, not just what's going wrong, which also is a good thought for parents, um, too, to look at what your kid is doing right uh, versus what they're doing wrong some of the time, that that could be important. And so I have three grown children. I have twins. Um, and uh, then I have a, a singleton uh, uh, daughter. So three children all together, two girls, one boy. Great. So that's interesting that you said that to focus on what you're doing right or what your children are doing right as well. So is there, I guess, a certain philosophy that you have or outlook on parenting before we get into the specifics of how to parent? Because I know that you call or label, uh, you know, what, what, or, you know, you, most of your talks, I think you label them as positive parenting. So maybe you can just describe a little bit about what that is and maybe what our philosophy or, or outlook should be on parenting. Yes. I think that one of the that happened is that, you know, for a long period of time, uh, the style of parenting in general was very authoritarian. And that was probably up until the 50s and 60s. And then it became uh, very permissive parenting. And the emphasis was on um, creativity and independence. And then we began to see an idea about self-esteem development in children. And what happened was it got picked up in pop psychology and it was looked at as we always have to make our kids feel good about themselves. Uh, so it got a little bit changed in the way that you might think about it realistically, because what happened was we overbalanced on the side of praising our children and thinking that criticism was wrong. Uh, but judgment is much, uh, praises as much a judgment as is uh, criticism. So it's important that we do help our children develop a healthy self-esteem, but the way that we do it is absolutely through a positive parenting model, which I would describe then as more democratic. Like I absolutely care about what my children think and feel, but I am the boss and they are not. So that part is a, a little bit of how I think about it. And interestingly, when my twins were four years old, I had gone to um, a seminar given by a man named Gregory Bodenhammer, and he was doing it in um, Orange County. And it was he had been working for the Orange County um, uh, juvenile justice system. And he gave a way of thinking about parenting. And he was working with, of course, really challenging juvenile delinquents, uh, incorrigible kids. And he was getting an 80% turnaround rate uh, through the method that he used. And I thought to myself, you know, if I applied this to starting when your kids were young, it made so much sense. And it has worked over the years, 100% of the time with thousands of families that I've worked with. Wow, that that's incredible. And just as you were talking about the history of parenting, that's just so true. Just from my personal experience that I, I just remember 
my grandparents, the way that they always describe parenting, you know, it was always like, you know, I'm, I'm the parent, you're the child and spankings, timeouts, and they didn't really care about their kids' feelings. And then I remember my mom describing how she was raised and how it was just, she could do whatever she wanted. And she hated that. It's funny, you know, she was only, you know, praised all the time and just, just what you were describing. So I didn't realize that that's how the culture was or, you know, how the decades of parenting were going, but it seems like that that's how everyone was kind of going, going that direction during those decades. But when I was listening to what you were saying, I, I kind of want to dig in a little bit on the practicality side on like what that would look like, what you're describing, the positive parenting. And then also after that, maybe we can just, just talk a little bit more about how to balance it more on the philosophical side. So um, what exactly would, I guess, you know, positive parenting look like? Maybe we can just start with toddlers since I know that that's a lot of our listeners tend to have kids five and under um, or I don't know, maybe something yeah, like yeah. temper tantrums or hitting some of those because I know that those are, or not sharing, I guess we can do those three examples. Like how, how would positive parenting look in those situations? Okay. So if you looked at the model that I use, it starts with the concept of why do we discipline our kids? Well, actually we discipline our children because we love them. And then the second point is that the first commandment of parenting is consistency. So you can imagine yourself uh, having a toddler. You're exhausted as a mom. And uh, if you have more than one, uh, you know, not double it. Usually, you know, that kind of exponentially goes up with the amount of time, energy and maintenance work of the kid. But if you're wanting to do positive parenting, you really have to have this idea that I have to be very consistent. So what I say and what I do matches. The third concept is that I care about what each individual child thinks and feels and that each child is unique. So there actually might be different interventions I'm going to have for one child versus another. I remember when my youngest daughter was at the stage in the, around the four to six period of time, one of the things that children get into is they love collecting and having things. In fact, to the point of hoarding them. So her favorite thing was to have a purse. She wanted to be like mommy. And every single time we were going out, she would start loading her purse with so many different things and it would delay us and she couldn't find this and she's breaking down, crumpling and crying. And uh, it became really important to her. So I used that as a disciplinary loss of a privilege. And I would say like, if you don't get your shoes on and you don't get in the car in three minutes, then you will lose purse privileges. Now to her, that was like, I don't want that to happen. So it helps shape her, you know, motivation to get her going. So I'm going to be interested in looking at what each child is like individually and tailoring some of my discipline strategies toward that. But I do want to remind your listening audience that if you think about the word discipline, it comes from disciple, and it really means to teach. So that is the first and foremost thought is I'm trying to teach my children to be able to raise in them the ability to be good and productive and responsible and happy citizens. So in order to do that, I have to find ways that look at when they do something right, I need to notice that equal, if not more to them when they do something wrong. 
because Alfred Adler talked about the three things that your children are after, and you can totally see this in a child throwing a temper tantrum, is you're seeing they want attention, they want power, and they want revenge. So it's one or all of those things. So when a child's throwing a temper tantrum, they're trying to get the power to get what they want. And then if you're looking at... um, Revenge, you know, if you're with a, you know, your kids and some other children uh, on a playground and someone takes something that your child was playing with, well, they're likely to bonk them on the head with it when they try and grab it back and push them. Uh, They're not intentionally trying to be mean, but they're trying to get what they want and to have the power. And then if you take what I want, I will bonk you. So most toddlers, they're very incredibly egocentric. So everything they see is mine, everything they've touched in the past and currently mine, and everything I want to touch and play with mine. So I have to hit them in terms of disciplining, teaching with ways that help them be able to get control and learn how to manage their own feelings of anger and upset. So with toddlers, I think, you know, a lot of the, you know, today's wisdoms is you put them in a timeout. And I don't have any problem with timeouts. I think they're very good. Uh, But when you're little, a timeout is basically to break the action of the thing that they were doing wrong. It's actually not, in my book, considered a punishment. It's to break the action. They don't quite understand that until they're a little bit older, maybe four. Because around four is when the conscience is developing. So again, if I just break the action and put them, let's say, in a timeout in their room, and if they're safe in there to play, I don't care if they're playing. That's great. Um, And they are happy in that moment also. Um, So it's not so much putting them on a chair or timeout chair, because that means you're going to do all the work. You're going to have to sit there and hold them in that chair. So it's not usually that beneficial. So I think when they're really young like that, it's mostly just stop the action and then let them try again. And then anything you can do in your environment to make your, what I like to call baby primitive decor, things they you know can play with that are on tables and low shelves, then that makes sense. So I know that didn't specifically answer those questions, but is that so far making sense? So... Oh, yeah. I had no idea that that was the point of timeout. So I'm glad you clarified that because I think that that's a common misconception. At least I had that. And then other mom friends have have that misconception that as well, because one of the things that we've talked about, um, you know, my friends and I are that when we do give timeout, you know, what do you do when you're out in public? How do you do a timeout? And then what happens if you have multiples? You know, mm-hmm. I just have one now, but a lot of moms don't feel like they're in the position to give a timeout to the older child when they have the younger child, because then they feel like they have to babysit the one in timeout. And then, and then, you know, what, so that's good to know that it's okay if they end up playing in timeout because the purpose isn't to punish them. Correct. Just stop the action. But it's, that's a great point. What do you do when you're out in public? Now, in that case, it can actually, you know, it, it might be hard work depending on how close you are to your car But to stop the action, I might have to go back to the car, put them in their car seat so they're safe, and then just say, right now, you're not following directions, you're not listening to mommy, so I want you to sit there and think about it. And if there's little toys that they play with the car, they can do that. Um, And as soon as you're ready to talk, we'll talk about how you can be a good 
listener or a born minder. So I like little catchphrases because kids love that and they can get on board with that pretty quickly. If you're my born minder, you're my good listener. I love the way you cooperate. So I look at their actions, not them, like you're being a brat right now. That's labeling and mean, uh, name calling. And uh, when we deal a little bit later, maybe with managing anger, which is a temper tantrum is definitely anger. You know, oftentimes we're telling kids what they can't do, but we don't really tell them what they can do when they're mad. But in public, you know, that, you know, I think it's good to give kids a heads up. Uh, like if we're going into store, what are the store rules? If we're in a parking lot, what are the parking lot rules? And then if they can't follow through, then they lose the privilege of being out and about for a minute. And then they go like whether you're putting them back in their stroller so they can't be walking around, uh, then maybe that's the timeout, even though that's more restrictive than if I were at home and have them go to their rooms. But if they lose a privilege that's the natural consequence to running away from mommy at the mall, you know, or not following directions in a restaurant and being really, really loud and throwing things. Right, right. So uh, this all sounds so great. I'm just blown away because I've never heard this type of parenting described before in this style. So I guess one common situation that I experience personally just from, you know, whether it's my friends or just complete strangers at the park or in public or whenever there's a, a gathering of, of people, are that a lot of times I see parents and, you know, sometimes I'm guilty of this too, so I'm not trying to single anyone out, but just say about 20 times, like, don't do that or else XYZ is going to happen, you know, like basically threatening the loss of a privilege, but it's never followed through or it's not followed through till the 20th time. So I guess my question is how many chances should you give your child? Because I know that a lot of moms just don't want to go through the hassle of breaking up the conversation with their friends and then they have to go to the car or whatnot. But then at the, on the flip side, I, a lot of times I see most kids because their parents don't really act on it very often that they just have zero respect for their parents. So how, how do parents know when they yeah, and you're raising a great point in that particular area. And so if we're kind of following the pathway down from, you know, we discipline our kids because we love them. The first commandment of parenting is consistency. We do acknowledge what they think and feel because that's important. Now we're getting to rulemaking. And some rules are like, for example, if you have like a school age kid, uh, those rules might be, you know, standard. Like every morning you get up, you go to the bathroom, you brush your teeth, you make your bed, you get to breakfast, then you get dressed. So, so you might have rules that are consistent to something that goes on every day, for example, like chores or homework. Uh, and then with little ones, there may be just rules that are like, what are the angry rules? What do we do when we feel angry? You know, what are the rules about hitting? Uh, what are the rules about, like I said, parking lot rules? You have to always hold mommy's hand uh, or daddy's hand. So let's look for just a second at how do you make a rule in positive parenting? So what happens is there really should only be two kinds of rules mandatory rules and discretionary rules. So when you are saying for the third time or the 20th, I told you get your shoes on, you have made that rule optional. So the 
that you're saying it more than once, the failure is me as the parent. Okay. So what you said was like, it's hard when you don't want to like interrupt a conversation. So absolutely right. It's really hard work, but the payoff is gigantic in parenting. When your children understand that what you say is what they must do. Because for a little one, most of the rules are going to be mandatory. They can't decide, oh, hey, I'm going to go to the park now. Or, hey, I'm going to go to the front yard. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to cross the street now. Right. So, so almost all of their rules are mandatory. So if a rule is mandatory, it means it must happen. So if I say, get your shoes on, we're leaving and they don't immediately get up, walk over, find their shoes and start putting them on. Well, I need to then immediately interact with them, get them uh, and put their shoes on because I said mm. it had to happen. So again, you'll see there'll be a lot of things that occur, like how do I actually figure that out? So a mandatory rule needs to be very specific. If it's a reasonable rule that's going to happen every single day, um, so, for example, if is, there's a no throwing your food or your utensils on the floor at any meal, well, mm-hmm. the second they do it, then that means you've already broke the rule. I'm not going to tell you again. I'm already going to have told you what will happen in a mandatory rule. I will say, here's exactly what I mean. If you do not do this, then you lose the privilege in that moment of eating right now with your family. So I try to make things look attractive. Um, So you could have been sitting here enjoying dinner with daddy and mommy, but now you have to leave the table and be in your room. And Mm -hmm. then we're done. Like you're telling mommy you're done. So Mm -hmm. I know sometimes it's hard because even if like, for example, you have a picky eater, but I really want them to eat something, but your child's not going to starve. Most toddlers like Barry Brazelton, a famous pediatrician would talk about their grazers. They eat a little bit all day long. It's not likely they're going to eat a lot at one given time. And so they're going to be absolutely fine if they don't get anything now for another two hours. But I have to be consistent. If I said you can't throw your silverware and you throw your silverware, then I don't have to yell at them. I don't have to re-say the rule. I just say, oh my gosh, now you don't get to sit and have dinner with us. You have to go and mm. And so really your kids, they want your attention. Now, if they're a strong-willed child, maybe it will happen 22 times that you have to stop dinner, pick them up, take them to their home, put them where they're... Sounds like my kid. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> yeah. but see, and really honestly, for strong-willed kids they're the first one you should say it once and once only because strong mm. are usually really bright and they will take full advantage. And now all of a sudden it's not about the throwing of the silverware. It's about the mashing of the food or calling uh, mommy a name. Like you're a dumb, dumb mommy. And then we're running on that. It's like, no, we deal with one thing at a time. And I'm actually really empathetic. Like if they start crying I'm like, I I can see you're really sad. That's so hard. But if you think about it, you threw the silverware. Maybe next time you won't throw your silverware. That's what I'm going to hope. Let's go to some, you know, time out now. So, so again, I can be empathetic. It's the same for if you look at now, let's say, you know, a three-year-old or a five-year-old, like little ones, it's really great for them to have things that they help the family do. So if I can help put the placemats on the table and that's part of my job and the silverware, 
well, then um, I want to, you know, involve them in giving uh, back to the family. That's important, just like having conversation at the table. But I have to think about what are realistic kinds of expectations mm-hmm. for an age. But even little ones that are 14 months old, their receptive language skills are excellent. Their ability to express themselves is not. But if I tell like an 18-month-old to go in mommy's closet and get her red slippers, she is going to know exactly what I'm asking her to do. But on her way to my bedroom, she sees a lint ball or a toy sitting there. She's just going to completely forget everything that mama just asked her. So I'm not going to get mad at her for not doing it. She's just gotten distracted. So I need to really understand what's realistic. But, you know, our kids' receptive language skills are really good early on. So if I say something, they do know that I said it. So then I have to follow through with whatever the consequence is. And sometimes consequences are positive and sometimes consequences are negative. But slowly, I'm always giving it back to them. Well, you made the choice to throw your toy. You made the choice, you know, to not go get your shoes. So now mommy has to help you. You know, so again, it's not like a big punishment. It's just like you just lost the privilege of doing it yourself. Mm. So, yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned the throwing of the utensils. And that just made me think of a a different question, because my daughter, um, she definitely does. She throws the utensils when, I don't know, she's either bored at dinner or she's done with dinner. And the other day I said, okay, well, you know, you're going to go get a timeout. And I had her go sit on the couch just very Mm -hmm. calmly. And she sat there and then I brought her back to the table and then she she decided to throw her utensils again. I'm like, okay, I guess we're, we're done with dinner. And then she went to go put herself on the couch and she said, time out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it almost seemed like it was a game. So I guess my, my question, follow-up question was then, do we have to experiment with different situations? So obviously maybe like for my daughter personally, like time out for dinner or like that situation might not work. So then maybe I have to figure out something else, like maybe putting her in a room or something. So is that something that if we see something not working or it's not effective, should we try mixing it up a little well, bit? Well, I think, you know, you're, you're, you know, your child best. So again, if it's a consequence that's negative, meaning it is a punishment and by negative, it has to hurt them. And I know that's really hard to hear, but if the consequence doesn't hurt. How am I going to be motivated to do it differently? So in that example, she's still getting to be in the room with mom and dad sitting at dinner and she gets her way. Uh, so that was a great job with saying, you can't throw your tinsels, you're in timeout. And then you give her the mm-hmm. chance to come back. She throws them again. And then you're right, consistently, you've already broke the rule. So she's smart enough to say, yeah, I go in timeout. But who's in control, her or you? So see, the timeout has to hurt a little bit like you get separated from family and our children want to be with us. So again, even if they go and play, the point is I highlight, like, I love having dinner with you and daddy, but when you mm-hmm. can't sit and listen and you are throwing your, your utensils, you told me dinner is over. So you shouldn't have let her come back to have a second try in that case, particularly if you're saying that your daughter is strong-willed. So she'll just use that. And she doesn't have the the coping skills yet to stop herself some of the time. So I'm just helping her. And, you know, let's go back to um, the idea of 
if you're setting a rule, you have to be very specific about what that means. So let's say, for example, in a temper tantrum, a child is hitting you or trying to kick you. See, that, that can't be allowed. They can't have that kind of control. They don't want it and they don't need it. And it actually scares them. And it is the same, honestly, with a teenager. I mean, I've been in practice for uh, 40 years. I've worked on inpatient psychiatric units with teens, with adults. And, you know, in all of that time, when I've worked with a teenager, every single one of them has said, I need my parents to tell me what to do. Wow. But if I say, okay, well, let's have dad come in and we'll talk about that. No, no, no. I don't want to do that because (laughs) all of us want to opt out of a rule anytime we can. If you're running late to something, do you kind of speed? Okay. The speed limit's 35. I'm going 45. I'm checking my windows. I'm looking to be sure there's no cops around. Like human beings opt out of rules all the time. But the point is we're trying to teach our kids to be good citizens and eventually to have self-discipline. So the rule has to include specifics, timeframes, and what will happen if they do do it, then a positive, and what will happen if they don't do it, a negative. Mm. That's so interesting that you mentioned about the teenagers and what they wanted, because I have, you know, I have read some parenting uh, books, but obviously not, not enough or the right ones, I feel like. Um, but I have heard that um, once kids are over five years old, and I don't know if this is true, so I'm just checking with you that their habits are pretty much set in terms of parenting and disciplining or whatnot. So it's really important to get every, all the disciplining in when they're five years or younger. Is that, is that true? Or does that help in the teenage years if you can? Um, Yeah. I I don't, I don't agree with that way of thinking. I, I think that um, the psychosocial studies that I have looked at over the years what you're talking about is more how they see themselves. So self-esteem gotten from the outside in from the important people in your life. So when you're little, it's mainly your parents. And so the statistics go that, you know, 50% of who you are is already your self-esteem done by two. All the things that like, if I meet my child's needs, they're cold, I get them warm, they're hungry, they're lonely, they're bored, I take care of their needs. Then by six years old, 60% of their self-esteem, 80 years old, 80%. And then the window closes by about 17, 18 years old. Now, whatever they think and feel about themselves is set. And if they need to change that, they'll have to do that work. So you do it from parents and then eventually grandparents and then neighbors and then important teachers or coaches or a youth pastor, like everybody can add to a child's self-esteem. So as far as discipline, it's interesting that children who have higher self-esteem, so if if you've got a healthy self-esteem at four or at 10, you actually, they do better in school and they tend to be more responsible overall. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is that often when we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, um, you know, giving praise or giving criticism, each of those is a judgment. But when you give praise, if you go to what the child is thinking and feeling first, find that out. So if we use the example, I bring you a picture I colored, 
Now, if I immediately goes, oh, that's a beautiful picture. I love it. Let me send it to grandma. We'll put it up on the refrigerator. Um, you're the best little artist. You're like wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, a child already has an appraisal if they're a, a, if they're a competent drawer, if they're not a competent drawer. So I would go, hey, tell me about your picture. And then they'll tell you whatever it is. And then like, do you like that? I love it. Great. I'm not happy. I couldn't draw a cow. Well, okay. Do you want me to help you with that? Do you not want me to? So if I praise the picture and they actually don't like it, or they don't feel that it was good, or they were really trying for something and they can't quite do it yet. Well, then I've just told them that I thought it was the best ever. So why would I trust you? Why would I trust you over time, you know, to tell me the truth? Because you can watch any kid in kindergarten class and, you know, there are kids who already know their whole alphabets. They can say their phone numbers yeah. and there's little ones that really don't, they're not ready yet. Or they can draw a picture of a person and the other person's just drawing round circles and they don't really have a full form. So kids actually are making their own assessments as they go along. So that's what we're trying to do is internalize their own sense of feeling competent and capable and absolutely lovable. And being lovable isn't because you are pretty or smart or good at sports. It's just because you're here. You're who you are. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love you. Um, but even when I love you, because I love you, I will help you learn to be the best version of yourself. So then there's where the positive discipline comes in. You can change up the rules and do it differently all the way through up and through their teenage life. And I think if you're consistent, I think the problem today is that there are so many resources, so many books, so many competing um, ideas about how to do it right. And so therefore, a lot of times parents hop from one thing to another thing to another thing. It takes a minimum of three months to get a new behavior cemented in. Mm-hmm. So if I try something for three weeks and my kid is strong-willed and then they're not doing it and then I hop to something else, well, I may have blown a chance to have something that was really solid, but I just didn't do it long enough. So that's something I would encourage parents to be sure you're really trying a new method wow. uh, before you hop to something else quickly. I wanted to talk just briefly a little bit more about the building, the self-esteem in children. So I guess, how does that work for the different ages when they're younger? Because obviously that's, I feel like that's a little bit easier when they can communicate better, maybe, you know, five and older, but how does it look like maybe under five, if you're trying to figure out you know, how some, how your child feels if they're throwing a temper tantrum or in a certain situation when you're trying to discipline them, how would that look like? Yeah. So, so again, when the context, my words and actions match, in other words, I tell you, I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to help you. So one of the techniques I use for uh, temper tantrums is in that moment, they're off and running. They've gone from zero to Mach 10 rage in a second. They have literally no coping skills on how to manage their anger. So when they're really little, the, one of the best ways that I do it is I just grab a blanket. It has to be a big enough one that'll wrap them up. I wrap them up as tight as I can. I hold them on my lap 
and I hold their head against my chest and I hold their feet with my feet uh, linked over them. Mm. And you hold their head just so they can't buck because they'll be trying to buck and move because when you're mad, Mm. your energy is high. You're physical when you're angry. So by wrapping up in a blanket, then what I'm going to say is like, you are not in control right now. So mommy's going to wrap you up in love. I'm going to hold you until you're able to calm down. So maybe I have to hold them on a bed. It just depends on where you are and what works. Um, But what happens physiologically is they continue initially to struggle and they're wrapped in a blanket tightly. Uh, One, they can't hurt themselves. They can't hurt you but they start getting really hot and then they vasodilate. And when they vasodilate, they begin to relax. And when they relax, they can breathe and they can hear. And then I can teach the life lesson. And so basically angry rules look like this. You cannot hurt anybody else with words or actions. So now going back to our mandatory rule, that's a mandatory rule. But because I need to be specific, I'll hit everything I've seen my kid do. You can't pinch, you can't kick, you can't butt with your head, you can't pull hair, you can't stop, you can't punch. You know, so anything I've seen them do or think they're going to do, I explain you can't do any of those things. You can't call me a poo head, you can't call me a bad mommy. So you you know, you can't call anybody names and you can't hurt them with words and you can't hurt them with actions. The second anger rule is those things also apply to you because all of us have seen our toddlers Mm -hmm. and on a one to 10, when they're enraged, they might fling themselves back and hit their head on the tile floor in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. you know, or bang their head or, you know, uh, slam a door and uh, get their fingers pinched. So you can't be telling yourself you're terrible and ugly and mean, and you can't hurt Mm -hmm. yourself with actions. So as the boss, the parent, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm going to keep you safe by wrapping you up in love. And then you can't hurt things. So you can scream into your pillow, but you can't scream here in the kitchen when I'm trying to talk to Aunt Sue, because that hurts our ears, you know? So if you need to scream, you can go in your room and scream in your pillow. You could hit your bed. You could hit a pillow, but you can't hit a wall and you can't hit me and you can't hit yourself. So those are the three basic anger rules. And most kids can get that. Like, you know, if you explain specifically, you can't do these things. But now what can I do? So one, if they're a toddler, I'm going to wrap them up. But if they're a little older, well, if you feel like you're so mad, you want to rip things up, we get so much junk mail, let them rip. (laughs) That's a great idea. I can do your shredding for you. Um, If you're a little bit older and you have stairs in the house, you need to run and run up and down the stairs 10 times and then we'll talk because that will get your anger energy out. So doing something physical really helps dispel all the adrenaline that's gotten released in that angry moment. So again, that connection to, I see you, I hear what you're feeling. Let me help you find a way to express it. That, that builds self-esteem because slowly they get more and more competent at managing it. And so, so that's incredibly useful. So if they opt out and hit someone And like, for example, a a big toddler behavior is biting. Um, Almost all kids will bite. They'll bite when they're excited, but they'll also bite when they're angry. But if I see you bite, 
I'm not going to actually deal with you. I'm going to immediately go to the other child. I'm going to be so caring and loving. I'm going to say, you know, what can I get? Can I hold you? Let me look. Do we need a little ice pack? And then I'm going to look at my child. I'm going to say, look at this little one. Look at their face. They're crying. So I'm trying to develop the beginning of empathy in them. We don't like that when you bite. And so that is the natural consequence. I don't comfort them or discipline them right away. Mm-hmm. I comfort the other child. And that's what we call a natural consequence. And see, since they want your attention, they'll either come over and try and push that child, you know, depending if they're preferable, push them right off your lap, or they'll be really nice and say, mommy, 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 you smell good. Mommy, I love you. And I might just hold up my hand. I'm taking care of Johnny right now. And then I will talk with them about it briefly, simply. But, but those are some ways that build self-esteem. And then when you see them doing right things and you know, oh, I saw you playing with your friends. So nice. You guys were cooperating. I love that. You must feel so proud of yourself. Now that's building capability. And then any of the love statements in word and action. And actually touch behavior is very loving. So quickly, one of the other techniques that I use is what I call TNTs. It's touch and talk and positive discipline. If I'm sitting at the kitchen trying to make dinner, chopping carrots, and I want my, you know, five-year-old to come and start setting the table, and I call out, come set the table, well, they don't come because they're still watching their show or on their, you know, playing with blocks. So then what do we naturally do? We raise our voice and call again. And then by the third or fourth time, we're all in the angry mommy voice, grumpy mommy, you know, get in here right now and set that table. Well, if I had just walked in, touched them to get their attention, as soon as they look at my eyes, I say, table, now. You know, then if they don't immediately stand up, because it's a mandatory rule, if I just said it, it has to happen. Well, then I help them start to stand up and walk into the, you know, dining room and get the placemats out. And then once they get going, then I can go back to the, you know, kitchen. But it's going to save a lot of time in the long run. Initially, it's going to feel like, ah, it just takes so much time. But if it's time to go, it's so much better to go touch them, shoes. Like, I don't have to talk a lot. I know when I was a young mom, uh, in that first four years before I heard Bodenhammer talk, I was like, wow, way over talking. So it's just like when it's a moment where they're supposed to do something, a quick command, start. Now, I mean, you can make it fun. Some moms love to play. And I was that kind of mom. So if it's time to clean up, I might say, let's pick up all the yellow things. So a toddler, maybe they're going to get involved. Maybe they're not. You know, a preschooler, they understand they're supposed to pick up. They don't want to. So I may have to go help their hands pick it up. But eventually, nobody really likes being manhandled, even toddlers and preschoolers. Mm. So they'll start doing it, you know. So I will help in the beginning because they're not that capable of doing it. But if I touch and talk, I'm right there to make it a mandatory rule. And I'm going to get more success. And I'm actually going to yell less as a mom. And so that that feels good to me as a mom that I'm not yelling and screaming. Right. So I was going to ask you about that. So when I was listening to the way that, you know, that you're saying how you talk to your children is the voice that you're using and the tone. Is that generally how you should talk? Um, I'm just asking because I think some people equate positive parenting with maybe just 
being a little bit too permissive and just kind of suggesting things and, and trying to go that route or not being firm or how, what's the type of tone that we should have? Well, I, I think your tone can be uh, straightforward, direct, firm. Like I'm not like inviting you to put your shoes on because we need to leave in five minutes. I'm telling you to put your shoes on. Right. But I don't have to mean right. and when they throw it, I don't, I don't get mad, more angry with them. I'm very empathetic. I can see you're so upset. And now you don't get to go with mommy to the grocery store because you didn't put your shoes on. Gosh, I hope next time you decide to put your shoes on when mom says shoes. Mm. So then I leave her at home with dad or a neighbor or I go at a different time. But I'm always making what I wanted to happen really exciting. Like you could have gone. Mm. We would have worked oranges and pears and, you know, talked about cool stuff, but now you don't get to go. You lost the privilege. So I try and use natural consequences, but it's not being over permissive to, ha- to be kind and assertive, right? Assertive means I'm going to respect what you think and feel, but you will need to do what is a mandatory rule. And so if you're upset about it, I can get that. Mm. I would be upset too. You know, it, and it's an amazing, and again, I know we just don't have enough time to go in to how that all works, mm-hmm. but if, if you think about it the way that I've demonstrated walking down that, because I love you, you know, with as much consistency as possible and read that as consistency, it's not perfect. There are no perfect mothers out there. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect. It's that I'm consistent and I'm always trying to love you into the best version of yourself. And then I'm going to care about what you think and feel, but I'm going to help you follow the mandatory rules. And when you don't, you will get a consequence. And then you chose the consequence because you didn't mandatory rule. And then discretionary rules are just when you earn the ability because you've demonstrated you always come home and start your homework and you want to go this time to Susie's house and rollerblade. Okay, you can. But in an hour, you need to come home and start your homework. So again, I can make a rule discretionary. And the idea of something with a mandatory rule is also that the parent is setting the standard based on what's realistic for the child. So it's not to the child's standard that they clean the room. It's to the parent's standard that they clean the room. But a five-year-old can't mop the floor and wax it. So that's not going to be in the spec, you know, the specificity, but for a teenager, I absolutely could be in. Definitely. Definitely. I know we're running out of time. So the last question I was wondering if you could maybe just spend a minute or two, just briefly talking about, um, quality time with your kids and how much you need to give, I guess, like one-on-one time in order. Um, so your kids don't feel like they have to get your attention by misbehaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that again, for each individual parent and child, uh, duo, uh, that is really going to be a matter of your, uh, like I'm saying, your standard. Your child could take 100% of your time. You could take them to Disneyland, then go out to McDonald's to eat, and then read them a bedtime story. And they're whining and crying because you won't read them another bedtime story. You know, so they they want your attention 100% of the time. So really, it's going to be based on what you need. You know, so if mommies don't replenish themselves, we do become screaming memes. We get out of control. Uh, so self-care for moms is hugely important. 
that I take care of myself. So quality time is being absolutely present in the moment. And if it can be in the rhythm of the child's life, that's the best. Um, It's sometimes hard to schedule quality time depending on a child because maybe they're tired, maybe they're bored, maybe they are not ready to, you know, sit there and do the thing that you wanted to do. So really you have to kind of agree on what you want and then you have to uh, be able to set a boundary Uh, And that boundary is going to be based on, well, you know, we just spent 20 minutes reading and playing and now mama has to go and start dinner. So you can play by yourself. All right. So maybe they're going to bring in some books and play on the floor while you're working on dinner. But at that point in time, it's okay for you to work on dinner. Mm. I love that so much. Thanks so much, Chris, for taking the time to talk with us today. I've definitely learned so much. I'm going to implement everything. So I know our listeners will just love this conversation as well, too. So thank you so much. Oh, you're more than welcome. It was my pleasure. Take care.